from Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today. This is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemick and Ian Hext. Welcome to the latest episode of the Trojans Wired podcast, podcast which is an in-house production of the website Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network. I'm Matt Zemek. He's Ian Hest, my co-host and producer. So the Trojans went into Corvallis, the graveyard of dreams for the Trojans over the years. We remember 2006. We remember 2008. USC teams with national championship visions dancing in their heads only to have those visions shattered by the Oregon State Beavers. Back then it was Mike Riley. So that was uh, the, the, the scene and the, the historical context which brought us to 2022 and Lincoln Riley's first and perhaps only visit to Reeser Stadium in the Pacific Northwest. And it was a game that was every bit as weird and as wild and as unpredictable and unorthodox as one might expect from a USC-Oregon State game in Corvallis. Just those games get wacky, they get screwy, they spin sideways. Uh, To that extent, what we saw was predictable. But in terms of USC and Oregon State playing a rock fight instead of the video game, uh, the Wild West shootout that most people expected, like that was the big curveball. And uh, the fact that USC was able to score just 17 points, only one touchdown drive longer than 26 yards for this turbocharged offense with Caleb Williams, Travis Dye, Jordan Addison, Mario Williams, for USC to get shut down the way it was by Oregon State and defensive coordinator Trent Bray, who had a magnificent plan and whose plan was executed extremely well by his Oregon State players. USC to get shut down like that and win? Get out of town. Well, and that's what the Trojans did. They did get out of town, and they got out of town with a big, big, big win. It might be an ugly duckling in the box score, but it is a beautiful swan in terms of how it sets up the Trojans for the rest of this 2022 season. Ian Hest, it's not what we expected. It wasn't the shootout. It wasn't the fun, wide-open game most people anticipated. Uh, you know, the over-under was 70.5. <laughs> this game was roughly 40 points under that total. Uh, so your impressions on uh, a very uh, unexpected game, a game that deviated from a lot of the conventional wisdom, but a game which nevertheless delivered the result that USC was looking for. Yeah, we didn't even get to half that over-under throughout the entirety of the game. And, you know, early in the fourth quarter, you'd wonder if you'd get even close to what the final score wound up being. Uh, I think that we always knew in the back of our mind that USC was going to have one of these games. We always knew in the back of our mind that if it came against Utah, Notre Dame, or Oregon State, okay, well, that's the potential for a loss. Could they escape that game? It should give great confidence that that game happened against Oregon State and they made it out with a win. Like that that had all the tellings of 
this is the one that you're going to drop. That, like you had said in the in the intro, that this is going to be the time that you can't escape it. For for you know, you mentioned Jordan Addison, Mario Williams. For them to have combined four catches for 64 yards, I don't think that USC is ever going to be able to have a game like that for the rest of the season where they only get four catches and USC only scores 17 points and like can't like escapes with a win. I think that there is more of a necessity in those guys. I, I, you know, we talked about it before the game and I had said first one to 35 wins this game. I really thought that it was going to wind up being a shootout. I was impressed with, with USC's defense, especially against chance Nolan. We can talk about that in a sec. Uh, but but they deserve the credit, right? Because we had joked, even with Keegan Renault and the Riley Files, that there was not going to be a game where the USC defense saved you. Well, you know, we have to admit when when we overestimated that because USC's defense absolutely saved them, and it's why they're still a top ten team and undefeated. It it certainly is a huge feather in Alex Grinch's cap, not only to get a performance like this just on the raw merits, uh, you know, holding down Oregon State to 14 points in Corvallis, but doing so when, you know, if USC was even the slightest bit worse on defense, if USC gets two interceptions instead of four, Trojans lose. The USC had to max out on defense and to, for it to lead to a victory in which Alex Grinch gets to bail out Lincoln Riley's offense. Yes, I mean, that that certainly was not the larger theme of the Riley Files. It certainly was not the larger body of expectations in terms of this team, in terms of this coaching staff, and which components were going to be the foundation. I mean, obviously, in the first three weeks of the year, the defense was getting takeaways you know, against Rice, against Stanford, against Fresno State, but Rice, Stanford, Fresno State, games which USC led by 14, 17, 20, 21, 27 or more points in the second half. If you're getting takeaways when you're leading by three or four scores, it's not a bad thing to be sure, but it's not intense game pressure. It's not the same animal. I mean, this was entirely different. This was a game in which USC getting four uh, takeaways didn't mean that it won by 27 instead of 10. It meant it won the game instead of losing. Uh, so when when something like that happens against a formidable opponent uh, in, in a high-stakes game where everyone knew how big it was, you know, when your defense is doing it against Rice and Stanford, okay, sure, fine, that's nice. But can you do it when the stakes are higher and the margins for error are smaller? Now that USC's defense has done that, we have to think about USC's defense differently. Not in the sense that, oh, this is how it's going to be the rest of the season. No. I mean, this, look, no defense is going to keep getting four takeaways, you know, three, four interceptions per game the way USC has. But what we can say is that when you do things in a pressure cooker type game, in addition to, you know, the easy uh, joyride when you're winning by 20, 27 points, that empirically, objectively reshapes the conversation in terms of how good a defense you are. I, I agree with you, Matt, but here's the bailout clause. They also took care of the ball. And the fact that those turnover that those turnovers that the defense got were maximized so much because the offense still wasn't giving up the ball 
at all. It, it almost made it a double whammy in, in terms of survival mode there because you could give up four turnovers or you could get four turnovers, but if you give up three in that same game, that margin only being one, this game would have looked quite different. So that's the escape clause for the offense to say, well, we still took care of the ball and played a field possession game. It wasn't like we were giving them a short field. It wasn't like uh, there there was a, a back heel for the defense to be put in those pressure situations. The fact that they were able to pray, play freely and and really be able to maximize those turnovers, I think is where the offense, if, if, if you are Lincoln Riley, if you are Caleb, if, if you are Travis Dye right now, you're saying, well, you know, we didn't necessarily go out and like take control of this game to win it in that shootout that we expected but we also didn't give the game away which really could be a cause for optimism that you could afford a game like this as long as you're not giving up the ball absolutely correct and for our listeners here on the trojans wired podcast usc number one number one numero uno in the whole football bowl subdivision in interceptions and tied for first in turnover differential and as Ian mentioned, the Trojans have not committed a single turnover this season, not just in the Oregon State game. So, yeah, it just sometimes you win games and sometimes you avoid losing them. They both count in the standings. Uh, and USC has not yet done anything to lose a game. Now, you and USC struggled against Oregon State, but USC did not really actively sabotage itself uh, generally. Now, there was a missed field goal, uh, a few, you know, the uh, there was a kickoff that went out of bounds. So there are some problems in the kicking game where one could say that USC actively gave away points, gave away yards, gave away field position. But at, at, for all the ways that Caleb Williams and the offense struggled, yes, they did not give away the ball. And just doing that on Saturday night, given everything else that happened, it certainly did matter. Because, yeah, it's not just that – uh USC's defense got four takeaways, but it was a plus four turnover differential. Could have been plus two. It could have been plus one. And under those circumstances, yes, USC would not have uh, escaped with a win. I think the, the next question we need to address, Ian, is you know Caleb Williams. Do we do we think that this game points to any underlying problems that might persist, or do we view this as a one-time thing where you know? USC was rattled by the crowd. It was the first truly intense road environment. You know, Stanford in week two was a walk in the park. It was not a very intimidating scene. Um, you know, that like this just simply jumped up and ambushed Williams in terms of how he processed the game. We also had the realization that, you know, we were expecting Cortland Ford to play at left tackle. He did not. And also Justin Dietrich on the interior of the USC offensive line he played, but he was well below 100%. He was wearing a brace, um, not even close to 100%. So that's two offensive line injuries. Uh, that obviously played a role in terms of limiting USC's offensive line. So should we, we should we be worried about Caleb Williams and thinking that you know there there are things in this game that might bleed into the future, or do we think this was a one-time occurrence and? you know, this ship should be able to steady itself as we move forward. I'll give two answers to that. The first being, I only think that it's a cause for concern if you believe that Lincoln Riley can't schematically get his way out of that, which I am on 
absolutely the fence that he can 100% figure that out and not fall into the trap again. The other side of that fence is Caleb can't afford a game where he's as inefficient as he was. And and especially in that mid-range 5-10 to 10 yard passing game, he was highly inaccurate during it. Taj Washington des- deserves a lot of credit. Uh, had a couple of bailout plays for him um, that, that I think really continued to provide, you know, getting ahead of schedule. Like we talked about ahead of the game. You mentioned the offensive line, and I do think that that's fair to bring up. It is, like you have noted many times before, extremely thin. And so then when you're dealing with these injuries like they have, that that puts even more pressure along it. So with all factors considered, I think it's a fair assessment. I don't think that there's any cause for concern, to put it that way. But it is a, a, a notation that you put in the back of your mind if something like this were to come again in the future. Absolutely. And uh, and and uh, that that leads to a discussion of uh, the Arizona State game that we have coming up. And when when we consider the larger landscape of USC schedule, Ian, I mean, one of the big reasons that I made it made it such a point to emphasize the Oregon State game is that, you know, in September, when you look at the whole USC schedules, the September portion had two Pac-12 road games. So USC's gotten through those two Pac-12 road games, 2-0. and Looking ahead to October and November, USC has only three Pac-12 road games left. One of those is in Tucson against an Arizona team which just gave up 49 points to Cal. So I'm feeling pretty good about USC's ability to, to win uh, at the University of Arizona, that, that being in late October. Uh, the, another road game is UCLA. And you can really put that in quotes because you'll have half the stadium with USC fans, half the stadium with UCLA fans. That's really a neutral site game, not really a true road game. So like the only really challenging true road game left for USC is that Utah game. That's it. Uh, Getting past the Oregon State game sets up USC where if USC does not lose any game in Los Angeles – so that includes the UCLA game uh, in Pasadena, which is technically a, a UCLA home game. If USC is unbeaten in LA in its backyard for the rest of the season, the worst this team can do is ten and two. And then, and so one of those road games is in Tucson. So if USC defends the city of Los Angeles, it's very likely that the Trojans are going to be eleven and one, which means they will be eight and one in the Pac-10 the Pac-12, I should say. Freudian slip there. Um, <laughs> eight and one in the Pac-12. That means you're getting to the Pac-12 championship game almost certainly. Uh, it definitely means a New Year's Six Bowl. Uh, it definitely means that the playoff, the college football playoff, will at the very least be a conversation point heading into the Pac-12 championship game. That doesn't mean USC would be likely to get in. It probably means USC would be in the mix such that if it did win the Pac-12 title game at 11 and 1, you know, moving to 12 and 1 on the season and if if the Trojans get some help in the SEC championship game in uh the ACC or Big 12 championship game, if the dominoes fall in the right direction, USC could get in. So that that again, that's why the Oregon State game uh was so important and why we emphasized it in the offseason. So as we turn to Arizona State, Ian, 
what 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 do you think are the big points of emphasis for this game? And and before you provide your answer, you know we have Washington State and Utah, two really big games against good opponents on the on the other side of this Arizona State game. So my general question would be, you know, not just looking at Arizona State in a vacuum, but like how much do you want to see USC fix its offensive problems in this game versus getting everybody healthy and fully prepared for that Washington State Utah double stack that's coming just around the bend? What do you think are like the priorities in terms of juggling this week versus the whole season and its full list of goals. This kind of brings it all together because if I have to pick one, it's staying healthy. And and I th- here's why, is that I don't see USC as one of those teams that was in that 8 to 15 mix to start the year as being susceptible to dropping a game that they shouldn't. I, I really don't. I think that they have just too much talent. They're all on the same page so much then I don't see them as like the Michigan State types, the Texas A&M types, the Miami types. I, I don't put them in the same category there. So I think that they could get by just strictly on straight talent alone in the games like Arizona State, like Tucson that you were mentioning before, uh, where where you know you want to look for things. Travis Dye really came through in the clutch uh, against Oregon State. If they can find consistency in the running game, that – adds something to this offense that i mean for all the talk that we we've mentioned in this and this is nothing against travis die he's a very talented player but 90 percent of that has been on the passing game if if usc develops a, a superior running game all of a sudden like a five-star offense becomes a six-star offense somehow I, so i really think that that would be where i would turn to, to especially if caleb's gonna have a game like he did against oregon state so I think that that's really a thing. But I also want to go back to what you said about the game at Utah, because I think that that when all of this is, is coming to term, USC has set them up perfectly to be in the Pac-12 title game right now for, for, men- for reasons that you've mentioned and I've mentioned that I don't think that they'll drop the games necessary to not make it. I think that they are firmly in the driver's seat. But if you look at it right now, in terms of the playoff, that at Utah game might be the difference between playing for a conference championship and playing for a national championship. And and that is sort of the seesaw that I see. So everything up until then, you mentioned Washington State, and I think think that that's fair, but Washington State isn't Oregon State. For as well as they've played, and I know that they played well, this USC team avoids the, 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 the problems that really could derail the season that I think without getting too far ahead, only Utah is going to be the one to stop them. And and I, I know that I could get in trouble for making that prediction here, but like I really don't feel like they're on the same level as those teams that possibly could drop a, a head scratcher like we saw a lot of teams do last weekend. One more item on Arizona State since that's the next opponent. Uh, any thoughts on the Sun Devils coaching search? And, and while you think about where the Sun Devils can or, or or should turn to, you know, we have the question of, you know, what what Alex Grinch might do, you know, if Arizona State comes calling for him. Uh, that that's that's one question. But the other thing is that, you know, we could have Carl Durrell of Colorado um, being fired mid season, so that would open up another 
Pac-12 job. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the matter of, you know, you have Nebraska and, and that job. Who knows, you know, if the dominoes in the coaching carousel related to that job might affect what's available uh, for Arizona State to choose. You also have Boise State. You know, Boise State got walloped by UTEP. Like, that is that is an eye-opener, and that leads me to think that Andy Avalos, the current head coach at Boise State, uh, might be fired. And that brings up the point that since Brian Harson of Auburn is on the hot seat, we could have a Brian Harson-Boise State reunion. So my larger point, Ian, as I think you can tell, lots of moving parts in the West in terms of coaching carousel jobs. So ASU is open. Colorado expected to be open. And Boise State, very realistically, could come open. In that landscape, um, What you know, are there any names or any kind of philosophies or approaches that you think Arizona State, this week's USC opponent, uh, should consider when it hires its next head coach? Well, here's the problem that Arizona State has, is I don't think that they can make a hire as long as Ray Anderson's still the athletic director. And it, like just based off of, off of history and what has happened, as long as that's still the case... You're you're sort of at status quo, and I and I I was a bit surprised. I mean, we saw the the change that Georgia Tech made in, in similar to what I'm talking about. I was a bit surprised that they would move on from her members and not from Ray Anderson. That that this would still be an issue because the track record just simply isn't there. And and so I think that as long as that's the case, there's going to be questions circling about. I mean, is any candidate a real candidate until you've committed? to that process and they, they've been a bit lukewarm on that um that, that that to think that there would be any idea of which direction arizona state wants to go i, I almost feel like it's too early to tell on that as opposed to a place like nebraska that you mentioned where you know trev alberts is still in charge there so they, they know what what they're going to do they're they are currently compiling a list and they will be active mid-season in in terms of that I don't think that Arizona State is there, and and I feel like almost they're behind the eight ball right now, to a point where, you, yeah, Al, I mean Alex Grinch has has always is going to be a name that's going to come up, especially in Pac-12, you know, head coaching positions or even like West Coast. You mentioned Boise State as as a possibility. I, I think that that's fair. I don't think that that's anything that would come as a surprise to any Trojan fans, uh, but but I think that. As long as there is this cloud lingering about, you know, what the future of Arizona State athletics looks like, not just in football, but at, at, as to who's in charge here, I don't know if you can necessarily start to compile a list of candidates like that. It, it, it is a fascinating dynamic. You know, I am based in Phoenix, so I, I'm seeing this drama play out right in front of me. And uh, it, it's going to be really fascinating to see where the Sun Devils go uh, at the end of this season. All right. You know, and folks, we're going to talk about the Pac-12 as a whole and the Pac-12 network and the experience of watching that uh, USC-Oregon State game on Saturday night in a separate episode. So, like, we're not uh, casting that to the side. We're just going to devote that to a separate episode. This concludes this episode of Trojans Wired. But Ian and I will be back later this week with another episode for you here at Trojans Wired.